Hello and welcome to Palliative Care Conversations. Today's conversation is part of our education focus series. I'm Dr Sean Gallard, an academic internal medicine trainee here in Wales and honorary lecturer at Cardiff University. I'm joined today by Dr Fiona Rawlinson, reader and programme director at Cardiff University and consultant in palliative medicine. Hello Fiona and thank you for having this conversation with me today. Hi Sean, good to be here. Hello. So today we'll be talking about communication skills and particularly communication during the COVID-19 pandemic. I know communication skills is an area of expertise for you, Fiona, both in your university and clinical work. Today is the 6th of January 2021 and we are still very much in the midst of the pandemic. As with so many things, communication has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you set the scene a little for us, Fiona? And tell us your experience of how palliative care communication has been altered during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks, Sean. Yes, and such a good question. And gosh, you know, I think recording this today at the start of January, we've seen so many changes in how the pandemic has affected not only us here in the UK, but but globally. Um, And I think I think it's brought palliative care clearly into very, very sharp focus. I think. Communication is at the heart of all healthcare. Well, it's the heart of sort of society, isn't it, in all of our interactions. But focusing particularly on the palliative care aspects, if you think of what the communications in palliative care generally cover anyway before a pandemic, we need when delivering palliative care, whatever our setting, whatever our role, whatever our discipline, we need to be sensitive to the fact that the people with whom we are talking are facing a life-limiting illness. Some of them may be early on in that process. Some of them we may get to meet quite late on when death is very, very much, very much near. So the way that we communicate, what we talk about, how we encourage people to talk about what they are experiencing, what their problems or issues might be, has to be very sensitively handled. We know that if communication is insensitive or if communication breaks down or if communication is challenging, we know that that impacts on the grief and bereavement of families after the event, after somebody has died. There's also the the, the general clinical assessment questions. It's talking about pain, talking about symptoms, talking about breathlessness. Don't forget palliative care covers all sorts of conditions. It's no longer just cancer. Um, and and so there's a need to be able to ask questions in a way that we we really get the answers so that we can then make that management plan for that patient. People who need palliative care haven't got time. You know, time is running out for them. And um, so it's really important that we can ask questions clearly, assess patients clearly, but holistically in a short space of time. And again, taking that line forward one further step, how much time we have to do this very much depends on the situation, the day, what the patient is is facing. So actually, it is possible, even at the front end of the general practice, out of hours, the front end of the hospital in the acute setting, you can ask really focused palliative care style questions in five or 10 minutes to get the priorities for that patient at that time when you have the luxury of a bit more time you can go into things in more depth 
So I think sometimes people feel that palliative care patients take up a lot of time. They take a lot of they take a lot of energy. We're thinking all the time about what can we do in a situation that seems disaster. There are always things that you can do, but you can learn tricks of the trade to get the most out of communication. But then what happened in 2020? Coronavirus came along. And coronavirus really did three things, is doing three things. We had the surge at the beginning, things went a bit quiet, and now many parts of the world, particularly in the UK, are heading into a deeper, more difficult second or even third wave. But coronavirus has put a pause on the usual methods of communication between families. Families are distant. Families may not be able to travel to be with people, to offer support in person to the person who is going through a life-limiting illness. Yes, there are virtual platforms, there is the telephone, but for some people they are they're not easy. If you live on your own and are not technologically minded, then all these technologies, Zoom, FaceTime, etc., that's not going to work. And you are going to be very alone. So family structure and general communication changed. The way healthcare was delivered changed, has continued to change. Reducing footfall, trying to reduce the spread of this virus, really trying to impact on numbers, means that actually the way that we delivered outpatient GP surgeries, things had to change to try to minimise effect of the virus, but that again changed the way we communicate. It changed opportunities. It's brought opportunities with virtual communication, but it's changed them. And then, of course, the physical way that we communicate when you're with patients, depending on your setting, you may be communicating via telephone, via virtual conversations or using level one personal protective equipment, PPE, or the full blown PPE if you're working in the, in the intensive care setting. That creates barriers. There are barriers. You are not in a physical space with a person able to speak, able to see all of them all of their face, all of their body language. And what we've had to do is to adapt to that and find ways to get the best communication we can, but in really challenging circumstances. Thank you, Fiona. So picking up on what you were saying about an increase in telephone consultations and some of the adaptations you've had to make for those, what do you think the pros and cons are of these telephone consultations? I think it's a really good question. And I think that actually brings us to a fundamental point that for some people in some settings, that is the only way that we can communicate with patients. We cannot see them face to face. So phone is definitely better than nothing. As we as we go through the pandemic, I think picking up the advantages and keeping those advantages will be good. But we will always need to think almost for this patient and family in front of me, what is the best way to communicate? So there may come a time in the future, I hope not too far away, when we are deciding that for some situations, a telephone consultation actually is, is, is the most effective way of doing things in all sorts of, for all sorts of reasons for that particular patient. But I'm hoping that we will continue to be critical about that and and not to develop processes just because the processes are easier so for some people it will be useful I think 
the phone is quick and it's easy, isn't it? You pick up the phone, you dial a number if you are the healthcare professional. But as a healthcare professional, there are lots of really useful aid memoirs now. I think the pandemic has brought lots of opportunities. So if, if, if you Google telephone consultations in healthcare, there'll be a number of different tricks and tools that, that you can access, which, which are always helpful. But I think we need to be aware that if it's not an arranged time of the call, our phone call is jetting into a house, a family, somebody's mobile who might be somewhere where it's difficult for them to take the call. So establishing, first of all, who you're talking to and is it still an all right time to call, I think is fundamental to the success of then what happens. And checking if they're on their own or if people are there is useful because, of course, you can't see the person at the other end. But then I think the general sort of tools of communication, asking open questions, asking hypothetical questions. If you're getting a bit stuck with things, you know, some people find that the general flow of conversation will be OK. What's difficult is managing silences, managing pauses and trying to guess from audio what the physical body language is of the patient. So a great example of that is actually in the use of silence, because if you think about it, and I'm thinking now of some of the more sensitive palliative care conversations, for example, around discussing priorities of care or preferences for, for treatment. Um, if there's a silence, if you're in the same physical space with somebody, there's usually an imperceptible movement as they take a breath to speak to end the silence. On a video consultation, you might see that, but don't forget videos, you're just seeing the face and not the whole person. But on a phone, it can be really hard. So sometimes the timing of managing silence is more difficult, is more difficult on a phone. Um, but I think phones can be really useful. But again, you, you have to use the same things if you're breaking bad news by phone, because don't forget with the virus visiting you know, reducing footfall in all care settings has been a priority and, and, and colleagues have had to break bad news by the phone. Using, for example, the Spikes framework, using the, the Rob Buckman framework, going through the usual steps is still really important. Just because it's a phone doesn't mean that you can take shortcuts in terms of the need for a warning shot the need for clear communication, the need to let people assimilate what you've just told them. And the real challenge is with healthcare being so pressurised, particularly at the moment with the volume of patients everywhere, both in hospital and in the community, actually that the, the, the time spent can feel, you can feel really pressurised and it's easy to think, oh, I've just got to make this phone call, but, but, but we know that taking the time to do it as well as you possibly can will have just such an important impact on the grief and bereavement of the families afterwards, which by definition may be complicated because they weren't necessarily there visiting. Thank you, Fiona. That's such incredibly helpful, um, kind of such an incredibly helpful insight into um, telephone consultations. I'd like to talk a little bit about personal protective equipment. I know that we both have experience in wearing personal protective equipment and that it really changes um, how you can communicate with people. What do you think changes with regards to communication when you're wearing PPE? 
Um, I think this is, I think as, as the pandemic's gone on, I think people have developed amazing ways to get around the barriers because depending, depending on what level of PPE, personal protective equipment you're wearing, you may just be wearing a face mask, in which case your nose and your lips and your mouth are covered. So all that people will see of you is your eyes and your forehead and your eyebrows and your general body language. So difficult if people are deaf and need to lip read, for example. So sometimes in that situation, if there, if there can be somebody with the person who's also listening intently to act as that kind of almost translator, but not quite, that can be really useful. So it, it's for the healthcare professional, it's actually, it's actually managing what it feels like to wear a face covering because it does slightly affect how you're breathing and it does slightly it, it can feel quite constricting but we have no choice we have we we need we need to use them because we know that they're helpful so i think wearing wearing a face covering it's concentrating on your body language so if you're a bit fidgety and ill at ease people will still see that um it's concentrating on what your eyes do what your eyes and your eyebrows do and our colleague um, in Cardiff, Dr. Claire Atkinson, has done a fantastic YouTube, very short YouTube video on how you can still communicate compassionately behind PPE. So really encourage people to watch that. So there's just the face covering. If you're then like me and you need reading glasses or if you're somebody who wears glasses, when do you add a visor to the face covering? As a healthcare professional, that can get tricky because, because your glasses will steam up, potentially. So actually managing the steam up of glasses and visor, either using sprays if you've got them, working out actually is there a particular head um, uh, a position that will enable the air to flow, to flow more, more, more smoothly is helpful. I think once you start to wear visor, though, I think it's really important to be warning patients that that's what you're going to do in hospital perhaps it's because it's it's more general in general settings people might be expecting it but certainly in the community where I do my clinical palliative care we do warn people that we're going to be coming with face coverings and what I've tended to do is to knock on the door ring the doorbell step back from the doorbell without my visor on and I've still got a mask on, explain clearly who I am and then put the visor on and then go into the house just so people can, people have seen me without, without the visor on. Teams across the country have found all sorts of ways to, to try to lessen the, the challenges, the barriers that PPE cause. But I think particularly at the moment in January, as there's so much concern about the virus, once again, it is being much more um, accepted, if you like. And I think people are more expecting it. Indeed, some people are, are would, I think, be worried if we were not taking all these precautions. Then I haven't had to wear the full PPE, but obviously colleagues in intensive care units and in, and in very COVID intense areas of healthcare have had to wear the, the full gowns, the full masks um, and there's been a lot written around around self-care of the healthcare professional, just because one does, I'm sure, feel that it's much more of a barrier. 
people have had all sorts of clever ideas of writing your name on your visors, having pictures of yourself, just so that it 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 personalises what actually might be really something quite impersonal to the patient. From the patient's point of view, again, the, the barrier is it's more difficult for them to make for patients to make a connection with their healthcare professional who's looking after them. And if we go back to what we were saying about that human contact, I think anything that anything that we can do to try to lessen that barrier um, is important. And it's difficult because the works, you know, the workload is going up. And so time to think about this sort of the background stuff to what we're doing gets less. But I still go back to the fact that actually how we communicate, how we use it, we have to use it. So we need to make it work. It's not perfect. I wish we didn't have to use it, but for the moment we do. So how can we, what can we do to make it work to the best of our ability? And I think the one last thing is just going back to people who might be a bit bewildered, delirious, frightened, Think about people who are who have had to move from their homes into a healthcare setting um, for healthcare reasons without all the usual visits and contact. And understanding the impact on that person is really important. So all the things that we can do to try to help bridge that gap for them is useful. And if there is a trusted family member who is able to come in, if the visiting restrictions permit them at a certain time, that's useful. If you're seeing people at home and you're worried about understanding, then having a, an extra person there, if you can, is helpful to do that translation. And then just sometimes, if you're in difficult situations, for example, in somebody's house and you're just feeling, I need to have, I need to have a really sensitive conversation, I need to ask this person, what their preferences are. I need to talk about do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. But all of this paraphernalia is just really not working. One option that we have is to set the groundwork for sensitive conversations, but acknowledge that this is really difficult. Now that we know each other a bit more, would it be better perhaps to use a virtual consultation so that we can talk me without all my masks and PPE on and we can continue this conversation either later today or tomorrow when you've had a chance to think about things with your family so actually sometimes you can set the groundwork and then use a different mode of communication to keep those conversations going it may sound as if it takes time up and obviously you know the, the workload is huge but just sometimes a little bit of time invested at this point makes journeys much smoother after that. Thank you, Fiona. Um, I think you've really highlighted actually that having an awareness of the barriers or potential barriers um, that PPE um, gives us um, with regards to communication is key. Um, you also gave me a wonderful segue then into about the virtual environment um, that we can we can use. Um, I know I have become much more accustomed to Zoom in the last year, uh, both socially with Zoom quizzes with friends and family, but also in my working life. What do you think is good about using a virtual environment? I think I think it adds opportunity. I think the same proviso is there that it 
it's not always the right tool for every situation. And I would be I would be really worried if we move once the pandemic is over to a society where all our healthcare all our healthcare consultations are virtual. Um, that that to me is worrying because what what you can't do on a virtual consultation, you cannot put your physical hands on somebody, listen to a chest, feel a tummy, examine the back of a leg to see if it's got a deep vein. Hold a hand. Example. All of that. And so, so you can't do that. But what you can do <laughs> um, is that is that you can have check-in consultations. You yeah. can continue, as we were talking about before, you can continue conversations without wearing a mask so people can see your face you can have much more meaningful conversations with for example relatives who are abroad so for the moment with travel restrictions being so much in place relatives who otherwise might want to have come over to the UK or to whichever country you're working in cannot do so and actually to have a, a, a virtual face-to-face -face consultation with a worried relative from abroad um, can be incredibly helpful because it enables people to ask questions. It enables people to put faces to the to the names for people looking after their loved ones. So it it is it is increasing opportunity. It is enabling healthcare to continue to be delivered in a, in an era when footfall, when physical presence in buildings and healthcare settings is reduced because we have to try to stop. The transmission of the virus so it is very enabling um i think there are still some ground rules again and there's some really great resources out there now people have been working so hard during 2020 to pull together simple resources um i think some of the ground rules are still the same you need to agree the time that the communication is going to happen but when you connect with somebody you need to check that it's still the right time you need to have a backup plan if communication is lost, because sometimes Wi-Fi connections aren't great. So actually, have you built in in your day time to email or to phone the person if the Wi-Fi connection gets 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 stuck or, or goes down in the middle of a sensitive conversation? Checking who's there with the person. You can only see the person. You might not be able to see the room. So actually, it's quite useful to know who else is there um, and, and are people comfortable. And the same thing about... Pacing the conversation, the, the only trouble with virtual consultations sometimes is that with a slight delay with the transmission of the audiovisual information, the, the smooth flow of conversation, the dance, if you like, between the healthcare professional and the patient and family member, ask a question, getting an answer, having a silence, asking another question, reflecting back a word, that that sometimes looks a bit edgy just because simply transmission of the information in the virtual world isn't as smooth as it is when you do a, when you do an ordinary face to face consultation. So in a sense, for us not being too hard on ourselves, if it doesn't look quite so smooth, but sometimes you just need to build in that extra fraction of a second as you ask a question to enable that person to respond. I think looking at knowing where the camera is on your device is helpful so that actually as the as the healthcare professional well, as as involving any any consultation whether you are the healthcare professional or actually whether you're the patient or relative speaking to the camera if you can adds that sense of connection um and i think 
again it's that silence being being able to respond to silence looking closely to see if there's an indication that the person is about to speak and the final thing which actually i probably should have said at the start is um you what what the what patients and relatives see is, is, is this bit of you. They'll see head and shoulders. So if you are looking at another screen, having a cup of coffee, looking down, writing notes at the same time, talking to somebody who's off there, you will not be concentrating on the camera. And so the person at the other end will see, will not see somebody who is focused on them. So actually it's what people have found, I think, in the last year is that it can be really quite exhausting and draining having lots of of virtual consultations because you are concentrating so hard your mind has to be in that place you can't be anywhere else you have to be focused which is great but actually it is you, you do need between consultations i think you do need just to have the few, even if it's a few seconds almost get up just look somewhere else and then come back to it and then of course the other amazing thing with virtual consultations is that you can bring other people in so potentially, if you've got a complicated situation and it would be helpful for either the patient or the patient and family to have, for example, me as a palliative care consultant and one of the oncologists or one of the respiratory physicians doing a joint consultation, providing we get the timing right, actually this can enable things which otherwise in healthcare up to now have been quite complicated to organise. So there's, there's lots of opportunity there are still sort of quality indicators just to think about really to get the best out of it from the patient's point of view, but also from the healthcare professional's point of view. Pacing is probably the most difficult, allowing silences, trying to, re trying to, trying to not be tempted to build silences. The silences kind of have to speak for themselves. And usually with silence in a conversation, what comes into the silence after that pause is usually really important. Thank you. And I think you made a really important point there in the middle about um, self-care when you're running a lot of um, a lot of Zoom consultations and that taking a breath in between is very important. I know you've mentioned already some fantastic resources, um, but do you have any more key resources that we can direct our listeners to to help them with their communication skills during this time? I think we can we can put some links around the podcast to some of the key things that have come out. So there's a there's now some very simple infographics for telephone consultations for virtual for virtual consultations. And in Cardiff, we colleagues devised something called the Cardiff Six Point Toolkit for communication skills. Oh gosh, now probably over ten years ago, which has remained the sort of the basis of of the palliative care teaching from Cardiff University and and from colleagues in Wales. And um, and it's just a, a collection of tools. Really, it isn't a breaking bad news. Um, um, algorithm at all it's a collection of tools that that help effective communication um whatever you're doing it works within families it doesn't have to be palliative care conversations but they're little things like thinking of the comfort are you comfortable is the other person comfortable thinking about language which is verbal language and body language thinking about question style so there are some times when closed questions are you in pain? Yes or no. 
actually a really important close questions are not necessarily wrong in healthcare, but you might use them in the wrong setting. If you want to know more about something, asking a closed question, which has a yes, no answer, isn't usually terribly useful. You need to ask an open question, which encourages people to talk. Can you tell me a bit more about your pain? That sort of thing. And hypothetical questions. Some people find, have you ever thought about hypothetical questions for palliative care situations can be really useful and they can be particularly useful in advanced care planning conversations when we're trying to elicit people's views on what they might want, which is, of course, is so important in, in COVID. And then there are little things like reflecting back words. That's a useful tool. If somebody says, oh, gosh, you know, I'm feeling really tired, tired today. You could say, well, can you tell me a little bit more about that tiredness? which might well elicit information. But actually, sometimes if you just say tired and if you reflect one word back of what you've just heard, that demonstrates that A, you've been listening, but also it can somehow keep the flow going. And very often that then will encourage people to tell you a bit more. And is it tired? Is it muscle fatigue? Is it not sleeping, etc., etc. And summarising is a key skill. So summarising is really useful in the middle of a consultation or in the middle of a meeting. If, if people are throwing things at you, throwing issues and, and situations at you, you can say, hang on, can we just, can I just pause a minute? Let me see if I've got this right. What we've talked about is one, two, three, four, five. A, again, that shows that you've been listening, but it also enables people just to have a pause and think, actually, I haven't mentioned this, that and the other. But then summarising at the end of the consultation is also really <clears throat> important. So what we've talked about today is bum, 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 and, what, and what the plan is. So, again, around the podcast, we can put some some links to 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 we call it. The, it's called the Cardiff Six Point Toolkit. Um, and and just as a framework for useful conversations, it's it's really useful. We've adapted it for telephone consultations and virtual consultations but really reflecting what we've talked about that the challenges for those technological means of communicating tend to be around ensuring actually comfort who's in the room with that person but it's the language and it's the managing non-verbals and managing silence can be can be more challenging as we've said. Fiona thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today Communication during a pandemic certainly brings its own challenges, whether that's a change in medium, um, such as using the telephone more or holding virtual consultations, or as you said, the physical barriers such as personal protective equipment. It's been really helpful to hear um, some thoughts on what we can do um, at the moment, and I hope that it's been helpful to those listening to the podcast today. We'll be back soon with our next education-focused podcast within the Palliative Care Conversation series. Bye for now.